With just five weeks until the start of the 2023 NFL season, things are heating up around the league and in Seattle. With so much to cover, we reached out to you for a special Cigar Thoughts mailbag episode, and y'all came through in a huge way. From DK Metcalf's extension to positional battles and throwback uniforms, we've got ourselves a hell of a show. Let's light them up. I'm Jackson Bevins, and this is Cigar Thoughts. Welcome back to the Cigar Lounge. I am Jackson Bevins, and along with my pernicious producer, Mike Barwin, this is the Cigar Thoughts Podcast. Mike, how are we doing today? Love the jargon, my friend. I'm feeling good, Jackson. I'm feeling limber. And most importantly, I'm feeling thankful to not be Tom Brady, which is not something that I can say very often. I'm just thankful to not be responsible for 100% of the NFL's first round picks that have been forfeited in history. So how are you doing? How are you doing? I'm good, man. I'm good. You know, I, I started a new colon cleanse today. So uh, a new beginning for me. And and let me tell you, man, I'm I'm feeling clean. I'm feeling flushed out. And I have been pooping like a goose. <laughs> I guess I'm uh, I'm thankful to not be Tom Brady and Tom Brady's thankful to not be you. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, I think that's the case most days for him but uh you know i'm doing my best to close the gap healthy and adding a little icing on top yeah that's right right we're we're clearing out the tummy snakes now listen normally it's you me and a guest but today the tripod has become a bipod it's you and me buddy and i'm stoked about it there's a lot to talk about and i'm ready to talk some shit jackson i mean this is the time of the year where we actually start to get some meat on the bone and there's things that are actually developing that are changing the landscape across the league. And of course in Seattle, uh, a lot has happened since the last time we were on the mic together. And honestly, I'm pretty excited to get to all of it with you. We, we put out a call on Twitter to see what of all the moving parts with the Seahawks and around the NFL was forefront on the minds of the listeners. And y'all out there responded with dozens of amazing questions. Stoked to get to those. But before we do, there have been some goings on going on around the league, and we haven't had a chance to talk about it on air yet. The big one, of course, is Deshaun Watson receiving a six-game suspension from independent arbiter Judge Sue Robinson. What was your initial reaction when you heard the news? Expected and chicken shit. Yep. I mean, I'll be honest, I haven't really I haven't really paid a whole lot of interest to attention to um what's happened since that new york times uh feature came out from uh jenny Vrentis. i mean if you read that that tells me everything i need to know and that tells me yep. that the discipline is not enough so disappointing but expected yeah you know it, it was expected um but it is disappointing and one of the hallmarks of the new collective bargaining agreement is this whole idea of an independent arbiter deciding player discipline when the players association and the league aren't on the same page. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about the players association pushing for zero games, which I don't think was ever really in play us probably more of a posturing tactic than anything else. NFL was on record as much as they ever are in terms of pushing for a whole year or more. And, the thought was it's probably going to end up somewhere in between. But now 
there is a clause that allows the league to essentially appeal the independent arbiter's decision and they appeal that to themselves. So they've got three days two now uh, to decide if they want to extend that punishment. And they're in a spot where they're going to choose which optics are worse saying, Hey, we agree to this independent arbiter, but we're actually just going to overrule it, which sets a really messy precedent and is going to lead to appeals and drag their ugliest story on longer and at the forefront of the news more than they certainly want. Or do you get the, in my opinion, much worse optics by essentially saying, yeah, you know, we basically see the very credible assault allegations from nearly 30 women equal to the same as, you know, like trace amounts of PED uh, in the system, which is the six games DeAndre Hopkins got. You know, you can look at Calvin, Calvin Ridley. Ridley. Yeah, there you go. Getting a year for betting on his own team to win, which stupid move by Ridley for sure. What's his username like Calvin better. Ridley, like 69 <laughs> on FanDuel yeah, or something. Right. <laughs> right, totally, totally. The real Calvin Ridley. Yeah. <laughs> Has his like Twitter and Instagram handles in his bio on the account. Right. Yeah, for PR inquiries, email my agent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like that was dumb, but he got a year and like, Okay, if that's how hard you want to come down to, quote-unquote, protect the integrity of the game, that's one thing. But now you're basically saying everything worse than that needs to be worse than that. And so, yeah, they're they're in a really tough spot. I, I wouldn't have cared if the punishment was really severe. The Trevor Bauer-type punishment that uh, Major League Baseball handed down to the pitcher was two years you know, um, I don't think that's going to happen. I I think if I had to hazard a guess, the NFL is going to choose the optics of not setting a precedent for lengthy legal battles every time player discipline comes up. And I think it's going to stick at six games. It is what it is, but they're, uh, they have a lot of other stuff on their plate right now. So they're probably going to try to quell conversation on whatever front they possibly can yeah and and look you know ben roethlisberger played for nearly two decades in the wake of really credible rape allegations and it was a different era Uh, the profile of disciplinary action has changed a lot since then but still it's the nfl will never come out and say it but they are saying it that Money is more important than women. Yeah. And that sucks. Yeah. And that's always been the case and it will continue to be the case unless something major shifts. Yeah. Yep. Well, you know, uh, we were grateful at the time and continue to be more grateful now that he is not the quarterback of the Seattle Seahawks. Um, sucks that he's in the same league, but um, I'm glad this isn't haunting this particular franchise. Fortunately, another QB was in the news recently for much different and far more hilarious reason. <laughs> Kyler Murray got a mammoth $260 million extension, half of which is guaranteed from the Arizona Cardinals. And while that should have been a watershed announcement in its own right, a contending team committing to their burgeoning superstar of a quarterback, it got drowned out by one specific clause in that contract. 
The Cardinals, an NFL franchise worth billions of dollars, stipulated that their QB, to whom they are committing up to a quarter billion dollars, must complete a minimum of four hours of, I kid you not, independent film study per week. Furthermore, they mandated that that study must not be done in conjunction with any distractions, including TV and video games. Mike, I died. I'd just like to retroactively charge my parents a quarter of a billion dollars for making me practice piano. <laughs> I feel I feel really, I feel vindicated after these many years. But like Kyler is, you know, a hopefully perennial MVP candidate for them. And so you yeah. should be jumping at the opportunity to give him that deal. So what was the, what was going on behind (laughs) the scenes? I mean, I think we know it was just that Call of Duty just keeps getting released every year. It's just so inconvenient. Did you see? I can't remember who it was. I should have, I should have checked the tweet, but there was a tweet that went out that uh, showed Kyler Murray's EPA by game every year. And then he drew a line in the graph whenever the new Call of Duty came out. (laughs) And his performance just tanked afterwards every time, <laughs> both seasons. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's perfect and fitting because, I mean, Cliff Kingsbury is just running the Madden playbook in December, so. Yeah, no kidding. Well, and, and I mean, let's be clear. Kyler Murray is one of the most talented quarterbacks to ever pick up a football. I mean, this guy played at the highest level of Texas high school football, which is basically a pro league in its own right. And never lost a game. And then he went to Oklahoma and won a Heisman and only lost one game his whole collegiate career. And then got taken number one overall and could have been a top 10 pick in baseball as well. I mean, we are talking about a he was a top 10 pick in baseball athlete. He was. He was. Even knowing that he wasn't going to sign or probably wouldn't. You know, uh, this is this is a guy that can really really elevate a franchise but we've seen a lot of athletic marvels wash out in the nfl especially the quarterback position because so much more is required of you to do it you are not only the most important player on the team you are the face of a multi-billion dollar organization and he's been open about saying he doesn't watch as much film because of his ability to just read and react on the field and all of that. And that always made me a little queasy. Um, but his his performances have been largely great, certainly at the beginnings of both of his years. And there's no question in my mind that if he does put it all together, he can be a top three, top five quarterback for a long time. I think he's that good. You know, it's it's funny and it's it's easy to kind of clown everything about that clause. But, I mean, the Cardinals locked up a true franchise quarterback for the next half decade. So, I mean, kudos to them, despite the hilarity, but the hilarity was hilarious. And it it got me thinking um, years ago, uh, we had Benjamin Albright on, uh, on beast pod. And he was talking about Paxton Lynch. Uh, the coaches would give him a playbook to study in Denver and they would go on Xbox live later when he was supposed to be studying and see that he was online playing video games <laughs> during during allotted study hours. So Well, and I, I think that there's a bit of some generational gap here too, right? I mean, we <laughs> I I'm 38, I'm almost 39 years old, and when I think of video games, I'm still 
thinking of the stuff that I grew up playing, right? And now it's so immersive. This is not Donkey Kong Country anymore. This is not Mario Kart. He's not playing NFL Blitz, right? Like these are these are entire worlds that you enter into with video games now. And oh, he, Kyler he is three sixty no scoping like crazy. I just yeah. know it, dude. He's a savant oh, online. This is a he guy who does nothing but win. Guaranteed. I am so confident yeah. about that. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So I do think that there's with these younger players, these kind of video games have been a part of their world, and they know how to navigate that, but you get to be an NFL quarterback. You are competing with guys who are building their entire lives around their study hours. You know, their lives exist in the margins outside of when they are studying film and studying opponents and studying their own playbook. And it feels to me like you are just, yes, he has this massive skill gap above most quarterbacks, but he's forfeiting a lot of that. By not doing the studying. And I imagine that he will, if nothing else, from the embarrassment of what should be the crowning achievement of his athletic life, signing this massive contract, uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him start taking it more seriously. And and that's going to make him an even greater and more dangerous quarterback. Of course. Nothing nothing spurs um, action like uh, public shame. Absolutely. E- even even if he didn't, even if he yeah. kept doing what he was doing, he's still going to be, at minimum, a good to very good quarterback for a long time, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me ask you this. How worried would you be as a Cardinals fan if you heard all this stuff coming out and you're like, okay, we just committed to this guy for five more years? You kind of got to like be like, oh, I'm not worried. And then nervously laugh a little bit like that sort yes. of thing. You know, like it's I, I don't yep. think it's going to be like a major problem, even if he's probably leaving a little bit of meat on the bone. No, but every time he makes a mistake, oh, yep. it's going to bring up the question, right? At least for the first year. It's, you know, the jokes. We're and- aware of like the, the ongoing tropes, the storylines. You watch Sunday Night Football and it shows Malcolm Butler like 25 times in three hours. Like we've gotten jokes for a long time. <laughs> We know, we know how that feels. Totally. (laughs) Totally. Keeping it in the NFC West, the last of the elite receiver dominoes fell from the 2019 class with Debo Samuel signing an extension, almost identical to the one that DK Metcalf just agreed to. Of course, we'll get to Metcalf's contract more in depth shortly, but how do you feel about the San Francisco 49ers committing $58 million worth of guaranteed money to Samuel? It's smart for the Niners, right? Like he's, far and away their best offensive player he's fucking incredible and he's absolutely the kind of guy that you want to lock up for the foreseeable future i mean we might as well talk about dk's contract right now because they're really they're really comparable right you have yep Yep. three-year cash flow is like 72 million uh debo got a little bit less in total a little bit more in guarantees it's the same deal for probably the best well i guess george kittle but like essentially the best young offensive player on both teams yeah exactly i mean both franchises should be hyped that they lock up a player as cool as both of those guys are you know well yeah you know and and that's just it the the on-field stuff is obvious but both dk and debo seem like tone setters in the locker room not not seem like they absolutely are and and that's so important when your best players are locked in right and you don't have to worry about what their commitment level is and the best way to do that is to give them the type of money that they want and it is a dangerous game anytime you start allocating large percentages of your salary cap to one player especially a young player that has never been paid like that before but 
I wouldn't hesitate to extend either of these guys. I mean, they are men amongst men. They are the leaders of their locker rooms and, and they're just, they're big time vibes guys. And you got to have those vibes moving in the right direction because the ripple effect from a player like DK or Debo is huge, especially in Seahawks situation where you've got a lot of young players on this roster. I mean, Seattle might be the youngest team in the NFL by the time cuts are done. And these guys are looking up to DK. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it, it was a no-brainer for Seattle to extend him, especially if they want to contend in the in the next couple of years. You know, you need that star, um, potentially ascendant superstar, wide receiver. And I mean, he's going to sell tickets, you know, like he's he's prime time. So and then yeah. from the 49ers perspective, the whole saga was just so confusing because you invested this much in Trey Lance. He's going into year two. That you're labeling yourselves as Super Bowl contenders. You were just in the NFC Championship game. You should have won the NFC Championship game yes. with James Garoppolo at the helm. Yep. And why would you not give your young quarterback the best playmaker on the team? And George Kittle can't stay healthy. So Debo, Debo is their de facto number one. Totally. And and I I think in many ways it's similar to Tyreek in Kansas City, where you have this super unique skill set paired with a coach uniquely wired to get the most out of it, right? Debo is going to be great wherever he goes. Tyreek is a one-of-one receiver. But you can't ask for a better situation for a Tyreek Hill than putting him with Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes. A player like Debo Samuel, who wins in a very different way than Tyreek does, would be an impact player anywhere else. But he's not going to get maximized the way that Kyle Shanahan is going to maximize him. I mean, it's the best interest of Debo's career, I think, to stay in San Francisco. It helps your quarterback. It keeps the juice going on a team that I think has been a top three to top five roster for five or six years now outside of quarterback. And if Trey Lance is the guy, um, Debo is certainly someone that's going to help elevate that. And on Seattle's side, you know, they don't know who that quarterback that they're going to be committing the future to is yet. And for that reason, I think a lot of people were like, you know, why are you going to pay Metcalf all of this money? You don't even have a quarterback. And and I get it. And we've talked about that on this show, but you know, if you're rebuilding or retooling, you don't do that by creating more holes in your roster. And if you'd lost DK, I mean, that's the, you're creating the biggest hole. He's he's the hard he's the hardest person to replace on that whole roster yeah. now. Creating that void does not benefit you in any way if you're trying to put it together in the next year or two. No, and it's it's I I, I mean I I understand the argument against it. It just feels a little short sighted to me. Like there's so much of this off season that has been tough, um, and nationally the reviews on it have been really negative. Uh, and and look, you know, the Seahawks have been winning double-digit games every season for a decade until last year, and now I don't see that in their range of outcomes, and they, they could win half of that or fewer. And so, yeah, if you just look at it from a one-year perspective, they've gotten a lot worse. But I think that what they're doing is pretty promising, and DK is a huge part of that. Yes, you are going to pay – to Kalen Metcalf a lot of money to presumably have a lot less production this year. 
But if you are going to bring in your quarterback of the future in 2023, whether it be a rookie, a free agent, a trade, you got to have people there who are going to elevate him. Tyler Lockett's going to be a year older. DK Metcalf is that dude. So I, and y'all know he's my favorite player. I mean, I was just so more relieved than thrilled, but thrilled uh, when the announcement came that he signed that contract. And with all these teams backing up the Brinks truck for these wide receivers, I shudder to think about the deal that Tanner McAvoy should and will inevitably get. Oh my God, Mike. All right. And finally, and this just broke this morning, the Miami dolphins have been penalized their 2023 first round pick and their 2024 third round pick for impermissible conversations with Tom Brady and Sean Payton and owner Steven Ross has been suspended for three months for telling the coaches. I think it was the coaches that the team's draft position was more important than their win-loss record a couple years back, which, yeah, obviously, you just can't say it out loud. Honestly, this is an incredible news drop. Yeah, I mean, this whole thing has been insane. Like, Tom Brady and Sean Payton tried to heist the Dolphins, and nobody was talking about it. <laughs> it was crazy. This was, like, months ago. I remember, hear- I remember hearing these rumors, and I'm like, okay, that's a little much. <laughs> that's a little much to believe. I mean, what does an owner suspension even look like? I was going to ask you the same thing. Like, what? Like, the, he just gets to go team. home and, like, watch on his, like, crazy satellites, you know, like, watch the training camp proceedings I, in 4K I from that's, above. That's what it means. He can't, like, be at the facilities, but, like, that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> I don't think, you know, unless it's Jerry Jones. That would be hilarious. If Jerry Jones ever got banned from being or suspended from being involved in team activities. That's some fallout I would be interested in for this. I'm just like, Steven Ross goes back to doing whatever Steven Ross does for three months. And then (laughs) I don't know, he can, he can meddle again. (laughs) This is funny. And just everything about it is just like, they said, you know, that he did say to Brian Flores that he would, you know, give him a bonus of $100,000 per game, but he said it like as a joke. It's just so, it's so, such a dumb thing to do. But, but, but the punishment was, you know, it was non-trivial. Yeah. Find a first round pick next year and then a third rounder the year after that. So Goodell's statement was pretty scathing as well. So, so hang on. So, if you lose a pick, it just gets skipped, right? It doesn't go any. There's Correct. just going to be 31 picks in the first round next year. Correct. So I guess that, I mean, Dolphins will probably have a better record than the Seahawks this year, but it, I don't think they'll be as good as the Broncos. So it should move uh, all of Seattle's picks besides their first one up one spot. So that's kind of cool. Everybody eats. Yeah. Everybody eats. <laughs> yeah. It's also going to cost one player uh, fifth year option on his rookie contract. That 32nd player is now getting a, a day two contract. So yeah, the, the ripple effects on this are, are kind of well. I just think it's funny that Tom Brady trashed an AFC East team one last time. Totally, totally. And like I was saying earlier, the NFL is going to try to, you know, tone down conversation about all of the different topics that they're being criticized on, on all these different fronts. And you know that they're looking to give this, whole Miami Dolphins fiasco, a bit of a feeling of conclusion, a bit of a feeling of closure to kind of downplay the conversation about Brian Flores's lawsuit. They're trying to give it that finality, you know, even though it's not close to finished. Right. That, that I think is maybe the scariest thing 
hanging over the NFL from uh, an organizational standpoint is Brian Flores's lawsuit um, about being discriminated as a minority head coach and and calling the NFL's let's call it questionable history of hiring uh, minority head coaches. So yeah, I I'm with you. I think the NFL is trying to be swift and severe and just say, all right, we're done with that on to the next thing. But um, we are far from done with that. I'm, I'm sure this is not the last time Brian Flores comes up on this podcast, but for now uh, it is time. We are done with the orders. Let's get to the Seahawks. Mike, we threw up the smoke signals on the Bird app the other day, and we were met with a deluge of salient queries. I understand you've picked out some of your favorites. I have. I have. Uh, we've got plenty of worthy submissions, and uh, let's get it going. So for the first one, we've got Ryan C. at Shambaugh City. Uh, put in a few, a few portions of this tweet as questions, but... We'll start with just the final, the final bit. Throwback unis and what's the holdup? Jackson, what's the deal here? Everybody's putting out these alternate helmets, all these other teams. The Bears put out the most hideous shits I've ever seen in my life. Oh my God, yeah. Yeah, everyone's going with Matt Black. The Seahawks, you know, put out a quote tweet with, you know, the eyes emoji about, ooh, should we do this? I don't, I don't dislike the current uniforms, you know, I don't, no, I don't have any no, problem with them. I don't have any problem with them, but there is just no comparison. There is absolutely no, no comparison. The classic 80s, 90s Seahawks uniforms are iconic and they are beautiful. And frankly, if I'm the owner of the Seahawks and I want this to be as profitable as I can. Oh, you're going to sell you imagine so many how many. I mean, they should have done it while Wagner and. Yeah, and Wilson, you, hell, they you should have done it while LLB all was the Hall here. of Famers. I mean, totally. oh, my God, when you had all those guys here. Basically, just double all the jerseys you've ever sold because everyone's getting those jerseys in the old blue and silver because those jerseys, fuck, man, they are so cool. It would be so awesome to see that in a primetime game. You know, instead of the action green on Thursday night, you come out with those. I, I don't know if it's like a licensing thing with Nike doing the uniforms because I know these companies own the colors and so there might be some issues there but whatever needs to happen jody allen i know you've got the resources let's do this and we know you're listening we know you're listening get it done please <laughs> stat yesterday honestly i feel like their marketing their their design department is probably just paranoid that they're gonna jinx it and usher another 30 plus years of losing into the franchise sure. so maybe maybe you wait until there's a little bit more excitement around the franchise all right next question from alec at alec hive 11 what young position group do you think is the most important for the hawks to see growth from in 22 and this is position group duos so which of these excite you the most jackson mafe and taylor at edge outside linebacker uh brown and bryant that's trey brown and kobe bryant at corner or Charles Cross and Abraham Lucas. Oh, and also uh, uh, Cody Barton and Jordan Brooks. So could any of these guys be a skeleton key for the team's success on either side of the ball? This is a great question, Alec. Um, I think the one that's most important is Cross and Lucas. Um, they are being asked to anchor the future of the offensive line, and I think 
the offensive line is just going to be absolutely crucial to this rebuild of the team. Um, everything you want to do at quarterback, no matter how often you want to run or pass, getting the most out of your wide receivers, it's only going to happen if you're blocking up front and those tackles are the most important positions. It's exciting to me because they're going to get a chance to grow together. And and don't get me wrong, Jake Curran is not going to give up the right tackle job easily. But I don't think he's pegged as the future of the position the way that Abraham Lucas is. So that's probably the one I'm watching the closest. And I am very excited about it. But for pure excitement... I like these cornerbacks. Oh, I'm yep. really, really into Trey Brown and Kobe Bryant and even Tariq Woolen and Sidney Jones, Artie Burns. I mean, there's, I think, some really young dogs in this fight. So from like a camp position battle, that's probably the one I'm like most edge of my seat about. So you're telling me that Cody Barton doesn't get the juices flowing, Jackson? He does not. <laughs> no, I, I think that there's really no other answer for the most important. It's Charles Cross and Abraham Lucas. In an organization, in, in a regime that has not proven itself to be all that adept at drafting and developing talent on the offensive line, you got to hit on these guys if you want to compete, right? Like this is, these are uh, cornerstone players, hopefully. And uh, they're they're absolutely key to the progression in year two and year three, um, in in competing. But I am I'm with you. It's been uh, it has been a welcome development that Kobe Bryant. People cannot shut up about Kobe Bryant. Like that yeah. is all people are talking about at camp. He just keeps making plays. And when was the last time you had a late round defensive back, a, a day three defensive back that uh, that people are raving about at Seahawks training camp? It's exactly it's, it's exactly a familiar and feeling that is, that is it welcome. is it is, man. And we're not we're, we're not going to, you know, put that kind of pressure on Kobe. But I mean, the guy won the Jim Thorpe Award for being the best defensive back in college football last year. And a lot of that is because maybe the truly best defensive back in college football was on the other side of the field. And so he got a ton of targets, had a chance to make a bunch of plays, break up a bunch of passes, pick off a lot of balls, all that. And so I was super curious to see, like, were his numbers really good from just because he got a ton of volume, way more volume than most elite corners do? Or is it because he's really a baller and he's looking like a baller in camp so far? The flip side of this is uh, maybe, hopefully not, that maybe this is a product of um, abysmal play at the quarterback position. <laughs> maybe the offense is totally. so dysfunctional that these guys I are mean, just looking like Hall of Famers out here. But No, no question. I mean, you, you have to see everything at training camp through a specific filter and, and understand that we're not seeing best on best all the time. But... You do want to pay attention to consistent reports. There's lots of players who make a nice play or have a really good day at practice. But as the weeks go on, if you're still hearing about Bryant balling out, you can start to project that a little bit as someone who's going to be a significant contributor. And if he gets a chance to get on the field meaningfully as a rookie, that's the best education you can get. And, you know, of course, Everyone listening to the show knows how we feel about Trey Brown. I, I think that guy is a stud. So, He's got the juice. Yeah. You know, and, and I don't want to gloss over uh, Boye Mafe and Daryl Taylor either. I think that 
They are important. I'm glad Alec included them in this question. Um, I see them more as pieces moving forward, important pieces, but not game changers, not the skeleton key that Alec referred to. Um, I do see that potential with those corners. I think that in order for Seattle's defense to become truly elite again, they need to have a great pass rush. That's what separates them from the really great defenses in this league. And I don't see either Mafe or Taylor being a game wrecking pass rushing force. I do think they can have a lot of value, but I think we're going to see that pass rush come next year, whether it be either in the draft or with the ton of money that Seattle has to spend. Uh, and, and I'm hoping that that that's the posi- number one position. I'm hoping they direct it at next year. Okay. Next question from friend of the podcast, Griffin Sturgeon at C Mike Spin Move, the one and the and only. By friend, you mean mortal enemy? Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, of course. Um, top three players you're most eager, excited to watch this season. Let's let's go lightning round off the top of your head. Ken Walker, Jordan Brooks, DK Metcalf, of course. But I think he's kind of a known quantity, so I'm going to say Noah Fant. All right, I'm into it. I'm going to go with Daryl Taylor, Ken Walker, and of course, the piece de resistance, Travis Homer. Who else? You motherfucker. Yeah, welcome back, dude. All right, all right. Let's move on to something different. So the other day, we saw a hard-nosed player from the Seahawks Super Bowl winning roster, someone who was never afraid to get dirty in the trenches, sign a one-day contract to retire a Seahawk. Mm. He was mm-hmm. the purest distillation of grit that we've ever seen and may ever see. I'm, of course, talking about J.R. Sweezy. Damn it, Mike. Okay. Well, it's, it, it was pretty funny that it uh. corresponded um, so close to one another that they did the exact <laughs> same thing. But both of them, I'm, of course, talking about KJ Wright. Um, KJ signed a, a one-day contract uh, last week to retire a Seahawk. And so the question yeah, from Tony to Blakely at Cyaplasm is, do you think it was just a coincidence that KJ Wright was the only LOB-era player who had a proper send-off? Of all the players that left on less-than-ideal terms, KJ seemed to handle injury, contract disputes, and free agency the best. How much can be attributed to buying into Pete Carroll's culture? That's that's a tough one. Um, I think that Pete Carroll is an elite culture builder. I also think that it's hard for any coach to keep a message fresh with a guy through three contracts. Um, you start hearing the same things over and over again. You've been in the league for a decade. I don't blame the coach or the player anytime that message starts to fall flat after a while. And I think that's what happened with a lot of Seattle's great players. Um, With KJ, he was always kind of one of those guys that if he was on your team and you were watching that team every week, you had no doubt about his value. And he was a pro bowler. It wasn't like he didn't get any shine nationally, but he was not who you thought of when you thought of the Seattle Seahawks from a national perspective. But he was a grinder. He did everything right. He's the the perfect leader in the locker room. All of that stuff. I thought it was so, so cool that they retired him as a Seahawk. And that video that the team posted of him joking with uh, Carol and Schneider as he signed it and was tearing up. Man, I was weepy watching it. I really was. I thought that was so cool. 
Um, as far as him being the only one to get that send off, I think I think it probably has more to do with the fact that the team is in a very obvious pivot right now, and they are quite directly closing the book on the last 10 years of Seahawks football. And when Sherman and, um, you know, Marshawn Lynch and Earl Thomas and Doug Baldwin and Michael Bennett and Cam Chancellor left, they were still clinging to trying to keep at the top of the NFL. And I do wish that they had handled those exits differently. Um, I kind of wish some of those players had handled their exits differently though. And that's kind of where I got to leave it. I'm not in that room. I don't know what's being said, how the conversations went on, on the way out. I can say it was really, really awesome. It was just excellent of them to do it right with KJ. All right, moving on. We've got from Stace and Shavum. Uh, now that they've control-alt-deleted Russ from the offense, what do you think the Waldron offense will look like with our personnel, and who benefits from Waldron's true scheme the most? This is a great question, and you know we talked about this with Derek Klassen in the last episode, and I think that there's an opportunity. We actually touched on it with Matt Nichols as well. I, I think this actually opens everything up to be a Shane Waldron offense. I think Russell Wilson is a difficult quarterback to run certain schemes with. One of the hallmarks of the Sean McVay offensive coaching style is the ability to attack the middle of the field short. And that opens up the edges for the wide zone rushes and some of the quick hitters that you want to do. You have to make teams fear the middle of the field. And for all of Russell Wilson's strengths, for all of his greatness, he never threw there. And I think that was really, really limiting. I think that took a lot of pages out of the playbook for Shane Waldron. So is the offense going to be better this year? Absolutely not. But will it look more like what Shane Waldron wanted it to last year uh, from a concept standpoint? I, I think so. And I think that's important because now I think you're going – to get to see the offensive line and the running backs and the receivers really be forced to embrace this new scheme so that when the next quarterback comes in, um, they'll all know what they're doing. But I think this is going to be a real transitional year, not just from a talent standpoint, but from going from what I think they wanted to do last year but weren't able to, to actually implementing the philosophies that got Shane Waldron the job in the first place. You know, the McVeigh offense is, it's like a tributary of the Shanahan tree, uh, the, an adapted uh, version. And yep. a hallmark of that, as we've seen in San Francisco, as we've seen in Washington with Kirk Cousins, as we've seen in uh, LA slash St. Louis with Jerry Goff, is a propensity for putting together competent to very good offenses with the. Uh, cubed ham at the quarterback position. So yeah. I think that even though the Seahawks have a less than ideal quarterback situation going on this year, I think that I'm looking forward to a little bit more uniformity with the heat map on offense. Yeah, no, no kidding. I, and, and I think there's a lot with uh, DK Metcalf and Noah Fant specifically. Absolutely. That has, that can be unlocked 
over the middle of the field. Um, that's where you want those big, fast, strong guys is over the middle of the field. And there hasn't been a lot of that. And I, I think Fant is uniquely gifted in that part of the field. So I'm, I'm really hoping that does at least set the tone for future seasons that, you know, Seattle can run an offense like this. So building off of that conversation, this next one comes in from Joseph Palmentary. says, everyone is assuming the quarterback position will limit their success in 22. What about if they go 8 and 9 or 7 and 10 and the assumed drafting of a top-tier quarterback is not available? What in 2023? This is a great question, Joseph. It's one I've thought about a lot. Um, and it doesn't really concern me. Um, I, I think in the grand scheme, like when we look back at this, it's probably better if they lose a few more game, you know what? I, I actually don't even believe that. I think it's really important to win and to try and win and to win as many games as you can with the guys that you have. So I'm, I'm going to rephrase that. I, I think in the grand scheme of things, it would be nice to draft higher. Um, but if they luck their way into eight or nine wins. And I think they would have to luck their way into doing that. Um, it doesn't concern me that much. You're still going to be drafting in the top 14, 15 picks, uh, with your first pick. Plus you'll have Denver's, you have the ammunition to move up for a top quarterback if you want, but this draft is loaded, not just at quarterback, but at a lot of other positions, at least to hear the scouts talk about it right now. And, that pushes quarterbacks down. I could see a very good quarterback still being there in the middle of the first round next year. There's enough of them being talked about as first rounders right now that I think there could be some really good options, even if they win eight or nine games and hold to their original uh, position. But if they fall in love with somebody that's projected to go top five, they've got the firepower to get there. They've got a second first round pick. They've got two second round picks. They've got future picks. They've got players they have ways to move up and get their guy. I'm not worried about that. And I think John Schneider is willing to do what it takes to go get his guy at uh, quarterback position next year in the draft. We're also seeing in this age of player empowerment, a lot of movement from uh, high end players that didn't used to happen. So I wouldn't be surprised if there are opportunities via trade, a, a disgruntled great quarterback somewhere or even in free agency um, through some unforeseen happenings with the cap where they can go get their guy that way. And they've got the ability to do that too. They're going to have a bucket full of money to spend. So uh, I'm going to be rooting for wins. I won't be bothered by losses this year, but I am rooting for wins. And if they happen to get a bunch of them somehow, um, it doesn't really concern me. The bigger concern is if they go eight and nine, and get outscored by 80 points. And Pete Carroll thinks that, hey, you know what? Gino actually can be the guy or Drew Locke can be the guy. We were just a player away. Let's run it back and miss the opportunity to get the next guy by extending one of those two. That's what concerns me about winning a bunch of games. This is a proof of concept season. And if it goes well, if you hit the the high end of uh, the range of outcomes, then you're still not going to be drafting late enough to limit your agility and going up to get a guy. 
Unless it's like, you know, like the quarterback run is immediate and they're in like the first two or three picks. But like they can still get up there. Like they have the resources to do that unless the teams at the top need and want a quarterback. Totally agree. So moving on, we've got the next one from Ollie McSqueeb. Shouts to Ollie McSqueeb. Ollie. <laughs> How long will it take this team to compete for a division again? What's a realistic time frame? And what are the dependencies, quarterbacks obviously, to get there? I think the good news is it can happen pretty quick. Best case scenario, 2023. More realistically, I think it's 2024. Um, Seattle's positioned themselves really well. They've got a lot of arrows in their quiver right now. And if they hit the mark with most of them, they can be really, really good pretty quickly. I mean, we see it all the time. Teams can go from the bottom of their division to the top in a year or two. Uh, and and I think that Seattle has the stability from a franchise standpoint to pull it off. We've seen them do it before. I am hopeful that by the second half of the 2023 season, they're beating good teams again and are a real threat, maybe not to win the division because they're further behind in their development, but to really compete with the Cardinals, Niners, and Rams, all of whom I think are going to be really good. This is not the AFC South. You know, it's going to be tough to get to the top of this division. All of those teams are set up really well, not just now, but for the future. So I think 2023 happens. And I think the way that it happens, obviously, I mean, McSqueeb nailed it. You got to get the quarterback, right? But I think you need to, I think you need to have another offensive weapon at the receiver position. Um, I think that by the time they're competing, Tyler Lockett's at the end of this contract and he's older. Um, I don't know that you're counting on him to be a real game breaker anymore. So they got to find that guy. Biggest thing, they got to get a pass rush. I love everything about their defense. But if they're going to compete with the Niners and the Rams, I mean, we talk so much about the brilliance of their offenses. Those defenses are insane, and it starts up front. They terrorize quarterbacks. It's what you have to do if you want to really compete for a championship. You have to be good at getting after the quarterback. Seattle's managed to win a lot of games without doing that over the last few years, but it's not good process. So I think what I would like to see is obviously get the quarterback in the draft next year if you can. Find another playmaker uh, on the perimeter in the draft if you can, and then spend a bunch of money on edge rushers and interior offensive line in the offseason. Yep, I'm with you. The pass rush has been uh, mediocre to poor for the last number of years, and they've still won a ton of games, as you said. When they won the Super Bowl in 2013, the final puzzle piece that took them over the top was adding Cliff Averill and Michael Bennett pushing that defense into the stratosphere, yep. you know, so it's, you know, a, a fun little what if, if they actually had a quality productive unit in, you know, say 2020 right. when they won the division, you know, and they're yeah. going 10 and six. Oh, I long for 16 game seasons. The convention is so much easier. <laughs> I'm, I'm never going to ditch it, dude. I know. I know. So next up we have Josh Smokey Hell Nelson. Looking to the carolless future, with the current roster pieces contractually in place, what sort of coach or system would you like to see take the reins next? God, I love this question, Josh. This is an awesome question. The only challenge is I don't think it's applicable right now. The franchise was so clear. You could not be more clear about sticking with Pete Carroll than 
by trading Russell Wilson. And I don't think that's a one-year thing. I think Carroll is here at least through the end of this contract, which I think is three more years. So I absolutely love this question, and I really hope you ask it again in two years because I've got some thoughts on what I would like to see if we felt like there could be a new coach next year. Spoiler alert, it's Urban Meyer. Oh, my God. And by the time that they are looking at a new coach, it's going to be a different-looking roster, and and I'm very, very excited to see what the post Pete Carroll uh, era looks like, but I do think he's the right guy for rebuilding if that's the route that you choose, and uh, I think the next two, three years are going to be all about his vision. All right, final question from Snack Burglar. Snack Burglar. We are betting on a good ground game, but... Since Marshawn, we haven't been able to run without Carson, except for a few games last year with Rashad Penny. But Penny's history ain't great. Was last year a fluke? How good can we expect Ken Walker to be year one? What if we're bad at running? And I would just like to say that the Thomas Rawls erasure is not uh, not appreciated. <laughs> yeah, man, those four games were something. I... They were they were a phenomenal <laughs> four games. I think there's a decent chance they're bad at running. This year, it is two rookie tackles and a general non-threat at quarterback. Teams are going to load up against the run, and Seattle is going to have to execute really, really well. To the Rashad Penny point, I think Penny is a truly gifted, elite runner of the football. I think that what we saw last year did come against uh, some of the more inferior run defenses in the NFL, but all those teams played 17 games and they didn't get carved up by other people the way that they got carved up by Rashad Penny. Uh, he was rushing over the last month of the season on like a 2,200 yard, 20 touchdown pace. Uh, and, and that's not a fluke. Can he stay healthy? That's the tough one. And I think that's why they used, a top pick on Kenneth Walker, who I also think is an elite runner of the football. I think you could put Ken Walker in a lot of draft classes and he would be considered elite among them. I think he's that good. So I don't know what to expect. I don't think that just like with so many other aspects of this team, I don't think we should overreact if they do struggle because it takes a lot of pieces working together to have a really good running game. Um, and a big piece of that is the running back. I know it's crazy to say in 2022, but you need to have a lot of talent at running back to make that work. And I think Seattle has that. They've got Penny for one year right now. Um, I think that they are going to lean on him and try and get as much mileage out of him during this year as he can take. Uh, but there's no question that Ken Walker is the future. And I think that by the time, this offense starts to click again, Walker is going to look like an absolute stud. I don't think that Rashad Penny has inspired any faith that he is like a 250, 300 carry running back by any means. You're, you're projecting forward to 2023, and if you have a burgeoning attack like you kind of saw through last year, the last few games, the production is not 
easily replicated. And I don't think it's really possible to replicate that production at the end of the season. No, no. If, if the expectation is that you're going to run for 170 yards a game with one running back moving forward, you're going to be disappointed. Um, I do think Seattle is going to have games where the running looks really good, where they click or they have the right matchups against specific defenses that give Walker and Penny space to really show what they can do. And and I think that's going to be really fun. Um, I think most of the defenses they play this year are going to make it really, really tough for them to look good. And I just encourage everybody to be as okay with that as you can be for this year. And the hope is that they look a lot better in December in this and every other regard than they do in September. December vibes are much more important than September vibes. That's it, man. Totally. I've said it before. I think there's a lot of 2011 corollary here. And that season preceded the greatest run in franchise history. So, you know, they the team didn't look very good that year. In fact, they looked really, really bad a lot of times. And they gutted their way to seven wins. Uh, but by the end of the season, they looked a lot better than they did at the beginning. And they were able to identify which of those guys on the roster at that time were going to be a part of the team once they were competitive. And that's my hope, is that by the end of this season, we have a clear idea of who is going to be a part of this team when they're really good again and who they can move on from. Setting the table, throwing darts at the board and seeing what sticks. (laughs) That's it, man. You got any other metaphors you want to throw in there before we get out of here? It's all water under the bridge. I'm still reeling from tummy snakes. (laughs) All right. All right, guys, these were excellent questions. Thank you so much for them. Uh, We couldn't get to all the ones we wanted to, but uh, we appreciate the input that you have. And also, it just lets us know how much you guys care about the show, and that that means a ton to us. Uh, As always, if you like the show, make sure you're following us. Uh, on social media you can find me on twitter at at jackson bevins that's j-a-c-s-o-n remember that no k is okay when spelling jackson mike is it at mike barwin and the show itself is at cigar thoughts you can also find us on instagram at, at cigar thoughts nfl and on facebook at seahawks cigar thoughts of course you can listen to this show and read every article at fieldgoals.com slash cigar thoughts and if you're listening to apple Podcasts and you like the show leave us a five-star rating and a quick review We are immensely blessed to have you guys as our listeners. The sport's been incredible. Cannot wait to see what this next season looks like for us, for you, for the Seahawks. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, onwards and upwards, my friends. (laughs) 